You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. We have a roundtable of uh, state regulators who will be discussing the methane rules. We have exhibitors around the hall I'd like everybody to, to visit. We also will be having a, uh, a roundtable discussion with some of our partner trade organizations discussing some of the exciting things that we're all doing for the state of New Mexico in our industry. I'd like to thank our sponsor this morning, Marathon Oil, all of our exhibitors, our coffee break sponsor, Enduring Resources, our annual award session sponsor, Sandstone Properties, including the awards presentation this afternoon and our presidential transition, which is the most exciting part of, of today. <laughs> we'll also have a keynote luncheon sponsored by Lucky Services and, and an address sponsored by Chevron featuring the hosts of the industry-leading global podcast, Mark LaCour and Jacob Corley of Oil & Gas This Week with the assistance of Paige Wilson. But to kick things off this morning, we'll be doing a live podcast while we're, while we're eating breakfast. The live podcast is sponsored by Walsh Engineering and Epic Energy. I'd like to thank them for sponsoring this. The podcast will be available for download after the meeting in the near future. You can find the links on the IPA&M website and the Oil & Gas This Searching Oil & Gas This Week podcast. Now, introducing our podcasters this morning, Mark LaCour has a passion for oil and gas, having spent 20 years in the industry starting in sales, where he has amassed a staggering total of $305 million in equipment sold with a global reach in every major oil field on the planet. He later started his own market research company, from which sprang the Oil and Gas Network, and now the top podcast in the oil and gas industry. Jake Corley is a Marine Corps veteran turned serial entrepreneur who fell in love with the oil and gas industry. He's co-founded three oil and gas tech startups as well as EMP assets across Oklahoma. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mark and Jacob of Oil and Gas This Week. Thank you. So everybody, this is going to be recorded and put out live. So this little group in here pretty soon will be in front of our 600,000 plus audience in 172 different countries. Before we jump into it, I just want to thank all of y'all for inviting us here. This is a great opportunity for us, and hopefully we can entertain you, update you a little bit, and maybe even make you giggle. Jake, you ready to get into it? Yeah, let's kick it off. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You are listening to episode 179. What's up, Mark? <laughs> Dude, we're sitting here in front of live people and there's lights in our faces. I know, it's pretty bright. And think that you and I started with like a microphone and an old a cassette recorder all those years ago. <laughs> so I want to give a couple of shout outs here real quick. So I want to thank the Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico for having us here. Thank you very much. So many people in the organization have treated us so well. Two people I want to give a big shout out to. So Danielle Weed did an amazing job coordinating everything, making sure we got here safe and soundly, took very good care of us. And then, then Jim Winchester, just for making this thing happen. So shout out to both of those. And then also to John Thompson with the Epic Energy and Walsh Engineering. Without you, we wouldn't be sitting up here. We'll make sure you get a link in the back notes for the show. And then real quick, I made a mistake, Jake, which happens 
a lot. <laughs> so I just want to give a, a shout out to Kurt up in, in Calgary. I misunderstood the whole C48, C69 bills. And basically what the mistake I made is the bill actually bans Canadian tankers from exporting Alberta bitum from the British Columbia coastline. So thank you for correcting me on that. We always want to make sure we get the truth out there. Even if I make a mistake, audience, let me know. I'll be happy to make the correction. And then we got a review, Jake. So this is from John David William from the United States, oil and gas industry positivity. This podcast shines a bright light on the oil and gas industry. Not only is it very insightful, but it captures the interest of the listener to wonder what each guest on the show does to be successful in their daily lives. Sounds like maybe he gave that review for the wrong podcast, huh? Because <laughs> we don't take guests on this show. But anyway, we do appreciate the review. Now it's time to get into news stories. What's going on, Jake? All right. So is the worst yet to come for shale drilling? Uh, America's biggest owner of drilling rigs fell the most in seven months after the chief of Helmreich and Payne uh, said he called the bottom a little bit too soon. So they had 220 rigs out and it actually shrank to 214 a few weeks ago. And Lindsay said that his projection was a little bit premature. So we think that the this is a full effect of the industry's emphasis on a little bit more, uh, I guess, being a little bit more disciplined with capital spending as that, I guess, idea continues to reverberate through the industry, especially the oil field uh, services sector. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what, what some of the service companies are doing. They're doing some things that are radically different. I'm not sure if the people in the room right now know this, but Slumberjay is out there now renting its oil tools to its competitors, especially its wireline oil tools. That's a revolutionary step forward, but they're doing this to adapt to this new market. Business is changing in oil and gas, and especially the service companies who typically are the first ones to have their margins cut have to come up with different ways to make sure they have good margins. And how is Burton's doing some stuff too, aren't they? Yeah, so they're eliminating jobs and warehousing equipment that no one wants to rent. Superior Energy Services has said that earlier this week they're looking for ways to cut costs and may sell assets to raise cash. And then, unfortunately, this is just the reality, but on Thursday, uh, 28 of the 29 oil and gas industry stocks in the S&P 500 were falling. Yeah, but you know we've been driving efficiencies through this last four and a half years of the downturn, and I'm starting to see it turn around. I'm starting to see companies adopt new technology, new processes, and quite frankly, after being in this industry for all this time, we needed this to happen. Right. So we're making the turn. We're driving efficiencies. We'll get a better managing our capital. We're just going to keep moving forward. Yep. Agreed. All right. Up next. Is there no quick exit for Permian oil and for private equity? So obviously private equity has been ramping up its investment in the Permian basin over the last few years. But RS Energy has done a study showing that, you know, the traditional flip in three to five year period is just not going to happen. I mean, these management teams are having to build a substantial company and they're having to, to plan to actually operate these assets for a longer term. Traditionally, the exit strategy for a lot of these private equity by companies has been through uh, the majors and through, through some of the bigger players. And the reality is they're just not buying right now. Yeah. And, and, and really the economic engine of all this, of this train, if you look at the way, is, is the public companies buying assets from privately backed companies. This problem is though today the, the public companies aren't buying. So what do we do with these assets? It's a problem that we still need to figure out how to solve. Yeah. I think a lot of the uh, private equity back guys are kind of just holding bags of uh, assets that uh, they kind of, um, I guess, overinflated the value a little bit. So, <laughs> and what we've also seen is a lot of these private equity back guys are, are, are private equity firms, I should say, uh, are having a little bit of a harder time uh, raising capital recently uh, because there is no exit for the portfolio companies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Jake. It's I don't know about you, but I have never seen this much cash sitting on the sidelines right now. And, and the investors just can't find good deals to put their money into. The, the cash is there. The capital is there. Yep. All right. So this is a controversial article that I've seen all over LinkedIn. A lot of people commenting on it about the validity of the results that the analytics firm 
Uh, I think it's pronounced Kairos. It's K-A-Y-R-R-O-S. They did a study. Actually, let me back up a little bit. So Kairos, first off, their leadership includes former Schlumberger executives and the founding group includes a lead economics for the EIA. And so what they are saying is that there was a tally of 6,394 completed wells for 2018 in the Permian, which contrasts with the 5,272 wells counted by FRAC Focus, which is the public repository for informational chemicals uh, used during fracking. So what they were saying is that Permian frackers have underreported production by 21% in 2018. Now, that is staggering if it is true. And so I've been talking to a lot of friends, a lot of different CEOs who have assets there in the Permian, and they're saying that we don't really believe this is true, but apparently Kairos has used some sort of technology that includes satellite imagery and also heat imagery to be able to detect you know, when they're in the fracking stage, when they're in the completion stage. And they're saying that another one of the, the most staggering stats we've seen is that they're saying that the Permian duck count is only around 1,100, which everybody's been believing that it's much higher than that. Yeah, it's a, I, I question this, and like I said, this is a controversial article. So basically, they used large amounts of data gleaned from satellite imagery, and they applied some custom algorithms to it to crunch that data to come up with these findings. And Jake, that's just not as accurate as counting barrels. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Same with the duck counts, right? It's using satellite imagery has its limitations. Cloud cover is a big one, right? And if you ever spend any time in the Permian, not only do you have cloud cover, you have the sandstorm cover as well, right? Really hard to get radar through a sandstorm. Yeah. So just to kind of throw a little bit more uh, gas on the fire, some of the other things that they were quoting in the article was that average production costs per well were understated, with far more wells contributing to Permian U.S. oil production than accounted for. Current shale oil production is substantially more water and sand intensive than is commonly believed. And then also assuming a cost of $5 million per horizontal completion, operator capital expenditure is underestimated by as much as $4.1 billion. Yeah, the, the other thing about Kairos that I, I question, and, and they have some really good people there, but they're an analytics firm, right? So they're in there with the Baines and the Accentures and the Deloittes of the world. And so a lot of times, and you know this, they, a lot of times those guys listen to our shows before we actually do our annual predictions. And what it is, a lot of it is subjective, and it depends on the, the skill of the analyst itself. The other thing is that if you started a new analyst company and you wanted exposure and you wanted people to become your customers, wouldn't you do something a little controversial to get that exposure? Absolutely. I see this as a startup with uh, obviously some all-stars from some of the bigger players, but doing a quick search on Kairos, their website looks like it was built two days ago and it needs a little bit of work. So I'm questioning a little bit of the validity of the article itself. But if anybody from Kairos is listening, feel free to reach out. I'd love to have a conversation with you guys. If anybody has any commentary on this or what you think about this article, please reach out. I'd love to continue the conversation talking about it. Yeah. Obviously, this isn't new news. This happened uh, earlier this week or last week. Uh, Callan Petroleum has acquired Carrizo Oil for $1.21 billion. So this is going to make a yeah, it's a nice, nice little company. Each, each company has uh, about 200 employees now. They're going to obviously eliminate some redundancies. They're saying that they want to focus more on, uh, obviously, their Permian Basin assets and Eagleford. I don't know if this is necessarily the greatest merger of two operators. I know Carrizo has been marketing their assets for quite some time. There's been a lot of talk that maybe Callan probably shouldn't have purchased them. I don't know. What's your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I don't think this is a good deal. Now, of course, they should have called us and talked to us before they made this deal. We keep telling people we have for a small fee, we'll help you figure out if it's a good fee or not. But uh, you know, they got a 25% premium on, on, on their stock. And so that's I just think it's a little bit too much there. But like we've been talking about all year, this is the season for mergers and acquisitions in, in upstream. 
streaming on land, right? And so you can see this happen more and more and more. And, and what I really think is going to happen, especially when you look at, you know, we look out over the next 10 or 15 years in the U.S. on land, the abilities for the majors to manage capital is one of their competitive differentiators. And I'm starting to see some of the independents actually get to that same level to be able to manage their capital as effectively as a major, which is going to make it really interesting. To me, it's almost going to be like the, the boxing heavyweight battle of the world in about 10 years when you have some of the major independents being able to manage your capital as well as the majors. And then they're all vying for the same acreage. I venture to say with some of the independents that I've worked with that they're already there and have been there for quite some time. Yeah. All right. All right. So you threw in one last article. TechNip FMC wins a $7.6 billion contract for the Arctic LNG2 project. So what's going on with this, Mark? So this is really awesome. So this is the, the old two companies, Technip and FMC. FMC was a subsea manufacturer. Technip is a subsea service company. They had their merger about a year ago. It was really interesting to see them because that subsea market has been suffering for a long time. That oil is expensive. That deep water, ultra deep water, high pressure, high temperature oil just doesn't make economic sense in today's market. And so you, you would think that these that these deep water service companies have suffered, and they, they really have. They've, they've went past the point of, of having to worry about what fat to cut off in, as far as employees. They're, they're literally cutting off arms and legs. Like, which, which eyeball do we keep? And it, it's, it's been just, it's been a terrific thing for them. I think this is really cool that they, they won this contract on LNG. If you listen to the show any length of time, you know that I think LNG is the fuel of the future. We are blessed in the United States. We literally have more gas than we know what to do with, and it's going to be around for 500 years at least. And we have the ability to export that natural gas around the world. The problem is, how do you move it effectively? You can't move it in a pipeline, right? You have to condense it down to liquid, which is what LNG is, put it in a tanker and move it. You're talking about all kinds of new technologies. You're talking about uh, crypto technology, like unbelievable low temperatures, the ability to insulate those super tankers, the ability to have lose the least amount by venting, move it across the world. Then somebody needs to buy it, but you can't buy it until you build an offloading terminal. They buy the LNG, then it has to go back into the gas system. So then they have to regasify this liquid. So you're talking about 100 years of infrastructure being built on both sides, whereas us and also the Middle East and Russia is actually building LNG export facilities. A lot of the world, Asia Pacific, particularly wants this LNG, which as a side note, when you switch from coal to generate electricity in your country to natural gas from LNG, you cut CO2 emissions by 60% right there, done. So this, I think, is really cool. They won this contract. This tells me that the precision manufacturing service side of FMC, somebody over there made a, a choice to actually look at different markets. They're looking at the LNG market, just like a subsea tree, which cannot fail. So they have to build a zero defect product. You can't have an LNG train fail. It, it would be catastrophic. So they're taking their engineering and their procurement expertise and their global reach and actually get into the LNG market. Now, this is the uh, this is going to be create a backlog for them, which they're so happy for. I know um, they haven't had a good backlog in a very long time. This should help their shareholder price, which then makes everything better. I fully suspect that if you keep going down this road, the pace of hiring will actually pick back up. They manufacture all over the world. I think they've condensed a lot of that, but I think you'll see their manufacturings go back up, which is just good for the industry and good for everybody. It's jobs, and we're making the planet a better place. So big shout out to Technique for FMC for winning this contract. I think we'll see more of this. So normally, here's where we go and talk about three or four more articles. Looks like everybody's done eating. So what we want to do now is we want to start to take questions. We call this our little Q&A session. Uh, anything that you guys want to ask about anything that's happening in the industry, we definitely don't know everything, but if we have any insight, we'd like to try to provide some kind of answer. So if you have a question, raise your hand. And Paige will actually walk a microphone over there. Oh, we got one over here. 
Mark and Jake, Jim Winchester with Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico. First of all, thank you for coming here to Albuquerque and joining us for our annual meeting. Certainly appreciate you folks showing up down here from Houston and sharing your perspective on all things related to the industry right now. Uh, I would like to get your take on specifically what's going on right now in the Permian and what you are hearing and do hear about infrastructure problems down there and how vital that is to improve that basin in the overall performance. Yeah, Jim, we haven't heard it. We've seen it. We've touched it. We were there. I got hail damage on my car from, from the Permian. The infrastructure, it's, you know, it's really always fascinating to watch this because it's always a race, right? So you have the operators that go in production, but they need to move those hydrocarbons to market, that, which is a constraint right now in the Permian. So then that creates the need to drive the capital growth to build the infrastructure. We're ta basically talking pipelines. I got a picture of us in the Permian, and it's, it's, there's operating pump jacks behind me. Behind that is operating windmills. And to the left of me is the biggest collection of Caterpillar earth moving equipment I've ever seen in my entire life. Right? They're building infrastructure as quick as they possibly can. Now what's going to happen is, and this always happens, is that as the companies, the pipeline companies build infrastructure to capture this market, some will get more aggressive than others, and at some point there'll be an oversupply of capacity of, of transport, which then will drop the transport costs, which then the operators will benefit even more because now that price differential is going to go away from, from their crude. But in order to do all that work, you need people. And one of the, the, the constraints in the Permian is literally they can't hire enough people. You can't go into the drive-through. I mean, I'm sorry, you can't go walk into McDonald's or Taco Bell and eat. Why? Because awful service company guys walk in there and hire the cashiers to $40 an hour. You can't hire a welder or a pipe fitter for within 100 miles. You can't build a home. There's nobody there that will build your house there. The same hotel that I promised you 10 years ago I paid $75 a night for, I'm lucky to get and I'm paying $500 a night. So it's this microeconomic boom. And if you haven't been there, you need to go there and just see it. The roads are, are incredibly constantly being tried to maintain and built, but they're being torn down by the amount of truck traffic is on it. The schools have record incomes, right? Hospitals are being built. And it's just this beautiful thing, all thanks to everybody here in our industry, right? It's, it's the prosperity that the hydrocarbons bring is spreading everywhere. Uh, back to your point with the pipelines, until those pipeline constraints get built, get finished, you could keep seeing that price differential. But there's a lot of money being, uh, being made building pipe. And not just pipe to bring hydrocarbons to market, but things like produce water. And it's really cool to see the operators go, you know what? We're in this place where we can't hire enough people. No matter how much money we throw out, we can't solve this problem. Let's work together. So now you're seeing operators work together on pipelines to move produce water around. Eventually, that's going to switch to uh, good water recycling. Well, then you have more infrastructure being built to bring that water back to the wells to be used again. So it's just a, a beautiful, wonderful thing. But the constraint of takeoff capacity is what's limiting growth out in the Permian right now. Great question. I don't have any com comments about the pipeline. I mean, you covered everything on the pipeline side. I think having spent a, a lot of time in Midland recently, and a lot of people that I've known that have relocated to Midland uh, recently or actually moved away from Midland, uh, a lot of it has to do with just the, I mean, like Mark said, it's booming there, but nobody can buy houses. Nobody can find places to rent. I mean, there's an absolute housing shortage. So if I was a real estate investor, I would look heavily into the Permian currently just because, I mean, you can't get a shack for anything under half a million right now. John Thomas, Robert Bayless, producer. Thanks for coming again. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, question, I've been reading some articles about downspace drilling, underperformance of parent-child wells in the Permian Basin. You guys have any insights on that? There's been, there was a recent article on cube development in the Permian by Encana and the underperformance of, of, and writing down our reserves there. Any insights? To me, it seems like common sense, to be honest with you. And I, I think it's something that, uh, 
it's become a talking point, especially amongst the public companies, as something, it's a new scapegoat for why they're not meeting their performance numbers. I don't think this is anything new, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and I think as we move forward with the technology, I've, I, I know a lot of the big tech companies. I mean, IBM's a sponsor of this show for a reason. They're looking at that problem, and I really think that is a big data analytics problem, that parent-child well, there's a magic formula, right? And the people that do it well, they can't even articulate how they do it exactly right. It's in their head. And it's in their head because they've done it for 25 or 30 years, right? And they've gotten really good at it. The problem in our industry, I mean, look in this room. How many people here are under the age of 35? You know, the problem in our industry, yeah, <laughs> we have a couple. Yeah. If you think about our industry and whether we're talking about upstream, midstream, downstream, or service, everything we do is a project. Everything we do is engineering. What happens when we can't hire engineers, right? So this is a bigger, a bigger picture thing for me. So the, the people that do the parent-child well, well have the expertise. We're not going to have that expertise in the next 10 years. We literally have this huge gap. Y'all know this. There's, there's everybody, every engineer coming in our industry is either um, right out of school or getting ready to, to retire. So the technology is going to come in. The technology is going to learn what is in these people's heads. And the technology is what's going to drive more efficiencies when we're actually drilling in production. We're not quite there yet, but the tech companies are looking at it really hard. But I'm going to take this chance to actually talk about something else in the fact that as an industry, we need to make sure that we talk about the good stuff that we do. We don't do this. The reason that people that don't like our industry have done so well is because they're very good at using social media. They're organized, right? They're misinformed. I've talked to a lot of them. Most of them, there's a huge population. Most of them, their hearts are in the right place. They're wrong, but their hearts are in the right place. And then there's a small group of people that don't like oil and gas that are making money off of it. And they feed the misinformation to the greater population. We're at the point now where a young teenager in Nigeria who 10 years ago would have been overjoyed to get a job with Chevron because that was prosperity for the entire village. Now doesn't want to come work in our industry because they think we're destroying the planet and we're not. Everybody in here, has, I think, has an obligation to themselves, to their company, to our industry as a whole to start telling the truth. Talk about the jobs you create. Talk about the fact that 85% of everything in a hospital emergency room comes from hydrocarbons. Talk about that 72% of a Tesla is made from hydrocarbons. I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to talk opinion, but just talk about the facts. Talk about the companies that build schools all over the world. Look at the intern programs we do here for young people. I mean, we need to start telling the bigger better story of our industry. And it's up to us to, to do that sort of thing. But back to your circle all the way back around, I think the, the, the differences between being able to drill effectively and complete in a parent-child well situation is going to be fixed by technology. And I think it's literally right around the corner. On that point, there's a, there's a couple different uh, technology firms who are investing heavily into uh, trying to figure out, I guess, just validate or disprove uh, any of the stuff that we've seen in the news with the uh, parent-child spacing. One of those is Well Database. They're putting a lot of money into that. Uh, I would highly recommend everybody check that out. And then also RS Energy, pretty big uh, data analytics group out of Houston. Um, they're also devoting a lot of resources to that as well. People think I'm crazy. I've been saying this for five years. I think our future as an industry is going to look like Silicon Valley. I think in 20 years, we're going to be sexy. We're going to be fast. Our research shows that here in the U.S. and Europe, we've hit the negative trough of public perception last year. So we're starting to pull our way out of that. We're going to be forced to adopt technology because we don't have manpower. We're looking at standardization across the industry, including offshore, which has never happened before, which tells me that we're going to have a flexible workforce because you have standardization. I don't have to work at Exxon for 30 years. I can work on an Exxon rig for an hour today and I work on the Chevron rig tomorrow and Anadarko the next time, right? Because it's all the same gear, all the same equipment. We're going to a really cool place. We just have to get around this curve and get there. 
Good morning, Kyle Armstrong with Armstrong Energy Corporation. You commented on the fact that uh, a lot of these towns are very difficult to find housing, very difficult for companies to, to hire these days. Are any particular communities or, or companies you hear that are taking on innovative solutions to, to deal with their workforce needs? I mean, it is a challenge for all of us. Yeah, so we are, Oil and Gas Global Network. And I don't want to go too deep in this because we're still in a pilot stage, but we've invested in some artificial intelligence for hiring. And basically what it does, if let's say you have, let's say you have an accounting person that is like the best accounting person you've ever had in your entire life for your company. Well, your accounting person is going to be different than accounting person in another company because your company's culture is different. We're looking at ways to measure that and then go out and find that talent other parts of the, of the country or eventually the world where people wouldn't look. So in this case, and by the way, I'm making all this up, but the, the tool is really there. Let's say that Detroit has laid off a bunch of accounting people, right? Where our AI would know that. And then our AI would go, you know what? I know that this person, based upon their age and what they did, is probably a big Facebook user. So I'm going to serve them a custom Facebook ad that the AI actually creates and says, do you know that you can go to New Mexico and get an accounting job just like you had before in a company that you will love and you'll stay there forever and you'll retire there for more money than you were making before? And that person says, yeah, I'm interested. And they opt in. They didn't take a quick test, which then creates their fingerprint. And we now know if they're a perfect match for you. And if they're not, we now have their fingerprint for somebody else. So we're working on solving that problem. There's other companies doing the same thing. The problem with skilled labor is it tends to be siloed. So for instance, one of our proof of concepts, one of our clients, which is one of the largest service companies here, here in the U.S., was looking for skilled labor for the permit, literally forklift drivers, welders, pipe fitters, carpenters. And so our AI goes, okay. I know where I can get skilled labor, right? That will move to the permian. I'm going to look at the military because if you're in the military and you're not shot at and you work a 12 hour day and you got a bunk and food, that's heaven, right? So the AI figured out the military would see that as a plus to move to the permian. Whereas a lot of young people out of college, they don't want to work 12 hour shifts in the middle of nowhere. So we're, we're getting there. Uh, once again, I think technology is going to help solve that, but we have an underlying problem is that how many kids today want to come work in our industry in the U S and Europe? That's a bigger issue. I guess a great to question. Of- I think this is on the same lines uh, as, as far as like hiring goes. I foresee if you if you pay attention to trends that we've seen, just as as a nation, especially with things like Uber and things like Airbnb, there's a whole lot of companies that don't have any assets, and it's just a marketplace connecting buyers and sellers. I foresee the same thing in the oil and gas industry. We have a significant amount of consultants, but I think the traditional consultant will turn into more of a freelancer, meaning. I think there could be platforms that could be built to where engineers could work for four different companies at a time. And I think that benefits the ENPs by lowering your GNA and not having to have people on staff all the time. I think it allows engineers to, to build up a great dynamic resume of projects that they've worked on. But I think the only challenge associated with it would be obviously trade secrets uh, between different organizations. But I do foresee that the industry will be going that direction. Uh, there's been a bunch of clear indicators that uh, the industry is moving that direction uh, with startups like RigUp, who is doing extremely well, especially on the field personnel side. But I do see that expanding into people who are actually at the headquarters of the operations. Good morning, gentlemen. Larry Scott, state representative from the southeast corner. Would y'all have any comments to make about the initiatives coming out of California, New York, and recently New Mexico to make our energy sources carbon-free in the 2040-2050 time frame? So we try really hard to stay away from politics, but we can't. (laughs) But but this is an important question. This really is an important question because there's several parts to it. 
and I got to be really careful here because I've talked about my views on climate change before, and it doesn't always mesh with what other people think. And I've literally, I've had death threats because of my views on climate change. But I'm going to answer your question directly. The population believes that CO2 emissions is important to cur- curtail. The population is the one that votes and influences lawmakers, as you know. So whether you think it's important or not, I don't think it matters. As an industry, we're headed that way where we have to measure and control our CO2 emissions. Now, what I think is very interesting is I think we're going to make money off of it. So here, follow my chain of thought here. So all of the majors already have CO2 sequestration technology in place, which, by the way, you know the best way to sequester CO2 in the world? You water all the world's prairies. Just water the grass. It'll pull more CO2 out there than anything else. It just needs the water. But we now have technologies where we can cost-effectively pull that CO2 out. Well, if you're an operator, if you're an operator and your state or federal government says we want you to be CO2 neutral and you develop the technology and commercialize it where you can measure the CO2 emissions that you're doing and then pull that exact amount of CO2 out the air, you're now CO2 neutral. What's the next step? Is the next step that I pull more CO2 out the air? Do I, as a major, do I influence the lawmakers that I get a tax credit if I pull more CO2 out of the air? I think we're headed that way. And then for all the engineers, reservoir and petroleum engineers in here, you know what happens when you have oil stuck to rock? If you can add some energy in the reservoir, you can get that oil out, right? It changes the viscosity. And what do you do? You inject carbon dioxide. So I think we're going to end up making money here. Do I think it's, the, it's important that we pull CO2 out there? No. In fact, I'm a little worried. The pendulum swings. So if you look outside right now, you don't see glaciers. We're not in a, an ice age. Ice ages appear to global cooling, right? The pendulum swings from global cooling to global warming. It's a natural cycle. About every 100, 120,000 years, we have an ice age. We haven't had an ice age in 109,000 years. My fear is for the planet what happens if we start pulling CO2 out the air while we're headed toward another ice age? And our politicians and our scientists, which are influenced by the money that the politicians give them from grants, don't see it coming, right? If anybody here is old enough to remember in the 70s, remember when we thought we were headed toward an ice age and the, the climate scientists were talking about spreading cold dust on the poles to slow it down? Those are the same guys that are telling us that, that man's activity is increasing global warming. The weather is unbelievably complex. This planet is enormous as far as the energy it absorbs and the energy that it dissipates back out in space. And I have never seen a single verified study that's double-blind placebo peer-reviewed that shows that man's activity has, has, has any influence in the swing of that pendulum. But to answer your question, I, I think the, the majors, especially in some of the service companies, are going to make money off CO2. Because I think we're going to put legislation in place where now there's an incentive for them to do it. It looks like we're time to get out of here. All right, so real quick, this is the time we do a giveaway. If you want to win one of these really cool shirts, IBM has a, a really, we have these shirts cut for both men and women. It's really qu- easy. Uh, go to the show notes, click on a link, and we give one away a week. Or you can just type in uh, bit.ly, IBM, forward slash OGDW. I'm going to skip the rig count. We'll skip the street team, the monthly email. Well, actually, we'll skip all this because Jim says when you get out of here. So ready to get out of here, Jake? Let's do it. All right. Remember, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. And here is Julie with events on deck. Okay, before heading into the events on deck for July, I have a few OGGN announcements. We moved our happy hours to quarterly, and so the Houston and Midland happy hour will be in sometime August or September. Be on the lookout for the date to be announced. And we are launching our Denver happy hour on August 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. All the details are below. And now let's move on to the events on deck. We have the Argentina Oil, Gas, and Energy Summit 2019. That's July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. The link is below. 
Then we have a happy hour coming up on July 23rd. It's the Intentional Networking Oil and Gas Happy Hour at the Houston Zoo. This is hosted by Equilibria, NOV, OGGN, and Flutura. And a portion of the ticket sales will be going to Redeem Ministries, a local charity to help human trafficking victims. You can sign up below. Next up, Mark, Jake, and Paige will be speaking at the 2019 ipa annual meeting, July 24th and 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is Addressing Operators' Needs in 2019. Sign up below. The Desk, Derek, Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual Shoot for the Future clay shoot is July 26th in Decatur, Texas. Sign up below. And last but not least, Summer Nape is coming up August 21st through 22nd in Houston, Texas to where the deals happen. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.